Dear Father, we ask for your presence with us very closely just now as we seek to see you more clearly as always. And this book of Isaiah, this portion really invites us to ask the question, what is the good news? What is the gospel? Help us to understand this much better than we do now. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so coming back to this table again, and this will be the last time really we go through this part of the chronology, down here through Isaiah. And remember, as we've said, Isaiah here was a prophet to both Judah and Benjamin, these two tribes, and then the ten tribes to the north here in Israel. And 722 B.C., Assyrian captivity, these ten tribes are gone. And so what we'll be going through next week, after Isaiah, remember Isaiah probably sawed in half in a hollow log by King Manasseh. And so... We have this brutal reign of King Manasseh. The streets flowed with blood. There was uh, so much uh, brutality going on at this time. And then what what happens here, 722, the Assyrian captivity. We eventually come down here to 586, the Babylonian captivity. And Judah and Benjamin are off into uh, the Babylonian captivity. So we'll be going through Jeremiah. And as we just go through, there were three invasions of Jerusalem. Daniel was taken off in the first invasion. Ezekiel in the second, and then the incredible story of Jeremiah. We'll do Jeremiah next week just because his um, period of time spans throughout all of this. It's, it's really a fascinating story, uh, what happened to Jeremiah. So just to kind of recap here about what the problem was with the people during this time, it's the same message all the way through the book of Isaiah, what was wrong with the people. And we get the same message here after uh, chapter 40. Listen to this, people of Israel, you that are descended from Judah, you swear by the name of the Lord and claim to worship the God of Israel, but you don't mean a word you say. And yet you are proud to say that you are a city and that you depend on Israel's God, whose name is the Lord Almighty. What's rather shocking is how many times in the Bible we see people calling God by the right name, worshiping him, and in that worship experience, calling him by the right name, and yet they did not know God. They're proud of the fact that they worship God, but yet God's not proud of them. Um, And, you know, as we've said, God showed up to his own people who were calling him by the right name, and yet they despised who he was. So there is much more, there should be much more to our religious experience than just having the right name of God. And of course, during Jesus' day, they didn't call him Jesus as we pronounce it either. So it is ultimately about who are we worship worshiping in character? Are we worshiping the true God? Do we understand him as he is? The book of Isaiah opens up with this same meaning, which uh, we read last time. Listen, heaven, and pay attention, earth. The Lord has spoken. I raised my children and helped them grow, but they've rebelled, rebelled against me. Oxen know their owners and donkeys know where their master feeds them, but Israel doesn't know its owner. That's always the bottom line. Eternal life is to know God These people have no idea what God is like. They don't have a relationship with him. There's no intimacy. They certainly don't have a true knowledge of his character. Skipping forward again now to uh, to Isaiah 42. Is anyone more blind than my servant, more deaf than the messenger I send? Israel, you've seen so much, but what has it meant to you? You have ears to hear, but what have you really heard? And I think this could apply to us. I mean, who has more knowledge than we do? We who live past the cross, who've seen the life, the death, the resurrection of God in human form, we've seen so much, 
but what does it mean to us? We have ears to hear, but what have we really heard? These people did not have the full knowledge that we have. I think we have so much more to base our faith upon. A few verses later, people of Israel, you are my witnesses. I chose you to be my servant. Why? So that you would know me and believe in me and understand that I am the only God. Besides me, there's no other God. There never was and never will be. Okay, but before we go on here to the message, which really this is, the, this is a gospel message here in Isaiah. The good news, the gospel is specifically mentioned again and again after Isaiah 40. But just one point. Uh, you will hear, and there is a lot of debate about when this book was written. And after Isaiah 40, many scholars have concluded this was not written by Isaiah, but was written by someone else. Um, again, this is what, uh, what others have suggested, that perhaps it was written in Babylon, maybe uh, 200 years later. All right, does this matter? I think it does matter. And we'll just go through a couple points. First of all, what's the main reason for this suggestion? And here's the reason. We have this man mentioned, Cyrus, several times after chapter 40. Here in Isaiah 44, I say to Cyrus, you are the one who will rule for me. You will do what I want you to do. You will order that Jerusalem be rebuilt and that the foundations of the temple be laid. And do any of you know about when Cyrus is in human history relative to Isaiah? And this 70 years after the Babylonian captivity, the man named Cyrus comes along. So this is a couple hundred years after the prophet Isaiah lived. And so it just can't be that Isaiah would be able to even name a man so far um, in advance. Couldn't have happened. So that's why uh, we put the book later on. Is that true? Again, the Lord has chosen Cyrus to be king. He has appointed him to conquer nations. He sends him to strip kings of their power. The Lord will open the gates of cities for him. To Cyrus, the Lord says, and we have these very specific uh, instructions or prophecy that declare what Isaiah would do, what Cyrus would do specifically in involvement of rebuilding of Jerusalem. Okay, so here is the, uh, the debate. Now, let me just make some uh, points on the other side to suggest a single authorship, Isaiah, for this entire book. One is, of course, we have Jesus several times quoting after Isaiah 40 and attributing it to Isaiah when Jesus opened the scroll. It was the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and it was in chapter 53 or so that he read the words from the scroll. So uh, one problem with saying this was written much later is that uh, we would be suggesting that uh, perhaps uh, Jesus got it wrong when he said the words of the prophet Isaiah said such and such, and now we're claiming, well, they, they weren't really written by Isaiah. Another thing that is done in terms of a scholarly attempt to figure out when a book is written is to look at how the words hang together. Is there a literary unity? And as I understand it, not being a Hebrew scholar, but that the language is consistent all the way through the book of Isaiah, again, suggesting a single authorship. For example, there is a phrase here in Isaiah, which is seen several times called the Holy One of Israel. And if you just look through the whole book, it's mentioned 12 times in Isaiah, first 39 chapters. It's, list, it's mentioned 13 times in the last 26 chapters of Isaiah. Same phrase, consistent all the way through, but when you look in the whole rest of the Old Testament, it's only mentioned six times. Okay, again, that would just suggest, hey, this was written during one period of time where this phrase was commonly used. And uh, if you 
would use apocryphal sources here. This book, Ecclesiasticus 185 BC, uh, refers to this as, again, a single authorship. It was written by Isaiah. You know, everything in the Apocrypha is not false just because it's in the Apocrypha. You know, the, the news and newspapers occasionally have true things in them as well. It's just not inspired. Um, the Apocrypha is where we find out that Isaiah was sawed in a half in a hollow log. Um, the Apocrypha is where we uh, read that uh, Jeremiah was stoned to death in Egypt. And so not, not everything in the Apocrypha is false. We just don't use it to uh, establish doctrine. So anyway, the other point I would make is in the context of these verses where Cyrus is mentioned by name, it is specifically God is trying to make a point. And the point is, I'm going to prove to you that I'm the true God. And I'm going to prove it by sharing with you my knowledge of the future. And listen to these verses. The things I predicted have now come true. Now I will tell you of new things even before they begin to happen. Repeated several times. Summon the nations to come to the trial. Which of their gods can predict the future? Notice that is the issue when God brings up the name Cyrus. Which gods can predict the future? Which of them foretold what is happening now? Let these gods bring in their witnesses to prove that they are right, to testify to the truth of their words. And again, I predicted what would happen, and then I came to your aid. No foreign god has ever done this. You are my witnesses. And finally... I make fools of fortune tellers and frustrate the predictions of astrologers. The words of the wise I refute and show that their wisdom is foolishness. But when my servant makes a prediction, when I send a messenger to reveal my plans, I make those plans and predictions come true. And this can be translated various ways. I wouldn't see God here manipulating and making sure that the future happens the way he has predicted. He knows the future and he is telling us about that future as evidence to us there really is a God. These words are absolutely inspired. Now, we haven't gone through so much prophecy in the Old Testament. There's actually a lot of it there. Uh, this story I didn't mention, but it's, it's really fascinating. Way back in 1 Kings 13, we read about this prophet. At the Lord's command, a prophet from Judah went to Bethel and arrived there as Jeroboam stood at the altar to offer the sacrifice. This is just when the kingdom split. We have two kings, Jeroboam, king of Israel, and Rehoboam, king of Judah. And this prophet came to Jeroboam. Following the Lord's command, the prophet denounced the altar. Oh, altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A child whose name will be Josiah will be born to the family of David. He will slaughter on you the priests serving at the pagan altars who offer sacrifices on you, and he will burn human bones on you. And the prophet went on to say, this altar will fall apart and the ashes on it will be scattered. Then you will know that the Lord has spoken through me. And this was 300 years later. So the people who know that the Lord really spoke through this prophet didn't find out about it until 300 years later. And that's 2 Kings 23, where we read about this man who's mentioned by name, King Josiah. And I'll leave this, this long passage here uh, up on the website. You can read through it. But exactly what was predicted came true 300 years later. And after he burned all the bones and everything, we read that King Josiah looked around and saw the tomb of the prophet 300 years earlier who had made this prediction. So there are a couple options here. One is that the Bible is very deceptive and manipulative and that someone is coming on later and adding in names, adding in details to try to make it a believable book. Um, the other possibility is that, um, hey, you know what? 
God really does have some knowledge of the future. And this is evidence to us, in retrospect, looking back, um, this is an inspired book. And I think, I have no idea what these slides say, and I'm not going to go through, I pulled these off the web. But I, I just wanted to make the point here is that the danger here is that we very easily get into making lists, end time events, uh, making up schedules of events, getting all caught up in the dates. And I think there's a, a danger in this. I'm not saying we shouldn't spend any time doing this. Please don't look at the details because I have no idea what the details are on these slides. And I, this is not uh, necessarily what I believe. But here's the point of prophecy. Remember, Jesus told his disciples again and again and again, I am going to be uh, crucified. I'll be resurrected in three days. And they just didn't get it. And then he told them, I tell you this now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. And so often the point of prophecy is the prophecy is fulfilled. And then we look back with amazement and say, wow, God really was uh, in control. God really knew. And we look back and our faith is strengthened. Yes, we should look forward. We should try to you know, understand these things in Daniel and Revelation. But the danger is we could figure out the schedule. I mean, we could. Let's just say we figured it out in detail. We knew every single end time event. God does not come back and say, now let's see, where are those people that figured out the schedule correctly? Those are the people I'm taking home. No, he comes back and he says to those who don't enter the kingdom, go away, I never knew you. Eternal life is to know God. We might not even know the schedule correctly, but if we know God as a friend, if we know his true character, uh, we might uh, not know who the king of the north is. We might not know a few details. Okay, let's try to figure the details out, but eternal life is to know God, not to get the schedule right. Okay, so are we afraid of God's foreknowledge? If God knows the future, uh, does that mean the future is fixed, determined, and all freedom is gone? This is a huge subject, which I'm trying to get through the rest of the book of Isaiah. So uh, I can't answer this question briefly, but I would just say this, that if God is just like Jesus, and if God would know that Judas would betray him, and yet he still washed his feet, then that's a God who you can trust with the knowledge of the future. Um, if I know the outcome of some sporting event uh, next weekend, I know every play, every detail, um, does that mean that it's fixed or that it is known? There's a difference between saying something is fixed, determined, and that it is known. And all the way through the Bible, I don't see God being uh, bored or disinterested because, well, that prayer, I've known for all eternity you were going to say that prayer. I mean, God is passionately involved with his children. Uh, God is intimately involved despite his knowledge of the future. Uh, maybe we should come back and talk about this later. But um, I see God as having a great deal of knowledge about uh, the future and what will happen. And I think that's good news uh, given the fact that we know who he is. So let's start now in Isaiah 40. Comfort my people, says our God. Comfort them. Encourage the people of Jerusalem. Tell them that they have suffered long enough and their sins are now forgiven. I have punished them in full for all their sins. And the, the punishment, this is discipline. It's the discipline of captivity. We've described God's anger, God's wrath. Uh, so many times through the Bible, it is God withdrawing because he can't do any more. People suffer consequences. That is the penalty and the punishment. But now something happens. A voice cries out, prepare in the wilderness a road for the Lord. Clear the way in the desert for our God. Fill every valley, level every mountain. 
the hills will become a plain and the rough country will be made smooth. And these words were quoted by who or about who? John the Baptist, right? He was the one who came to make a level place, to fill all the valleys, to prepare the way for Jesus to come. So notice what would happen. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory, as we've said so many times, I'm going to try taking this off here and we'll see if that helps. The glory, as we've described so many times, that Jesus came to bring is not that God is powerful. It's a given God is powerful. He didn't come to reveal that God is bright. He came to reveal what God is like. God's character is his glory. So after the message here of John the Baptist, then the glory, the real glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it. The Lord himself has promised this. A voice cries out, just continuing on, proclaim a message. What message shall I proclaim, I ask? Proclaim that all human beings are like grass. They last no longer than wildflowers. Grass withers and flowers fade when the Lord sends the wind blowing over them. People are no more enduring than grass. Yes, grass withers and flowers fade, but notice the word of our God endures forever. And Jesus came to bring us eternal life, which in again is that relationship, that intimate knowledge of God. Everything in the Bible reveals a contrast, two sides. Okay, we are mortals. God came to bring us eternal life through a true knowledge of God. At the cross, this message is even made about the great, um, you know, our life is really nothing. It, it slips by um, in a moment. God came as the word to bring us eternal life. Jerusalem, go up on a high mountain and proclaim the good news. Good news is not just in the New Testament. It's many times here in Isaiah. Call out with a loud voice. Zion, announce the good news. Speak out and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah that their God is coming. And so we want to associate here the word of our God, which endures forever with the good news. And Peter does that for us. He quotes this very passage in Isaiah. Listen to this. For through the living and eternal word of God, you have been born again as the children of a parent who is immortal, not mortal. As the scripture says, all human beings are like grass and their glory is like wildflowers. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And notice this word is the good news that was proclaimed to you. The word is the good news. So it's really significant then that Jesus comes and we have this description in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is fully God. He is the word. And many of you probably know that the, the Greek word here for uh, the word is logos, which is uh, really a, a mathematical uh, word. You know, when you do math, you're thinking logically. And um, the, the significance here is uh, this really means to count something out to us. Um, we still use this kind of expression when you go to the bank, you see a teller. What does a teller do? They count out your money to you. And so Jesus really came to tell us a story. He came to count out a story to us as the word. And what story did he come to bring us? This passage in, first, in John 1 concludes, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever really seen God. The only son who is the same as God and is at the father's side, he has made him known. Jesus came to count out the story to us of the Father. He came to reveal to us what God is like. So this word 
this good news. It's, it's just mentioned again and again as the, the ultimate. Just a few passages on this. In Mark 1.15, Jesus came and said, The time has come, and the kingdom of God is near. Change the way you think and act. Repent. To repent is to change our mind and believe the good news. Jesus came ultimately to bring us the good news. That's our question. What is the good news? Going back and forth between Isaiah The sovereign Lord has filled me with his spirit, referring to Jesus. He has chosen me and sent me to bring good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to announce release to captives and freedom to those in prison. Jesus came as the good news, really, in human form, the word. But we're trying to understand a little better what is ultimately the good news. We say we're going to bring the gospel throughout the world. Can we be very specific? What's the good news? What is the gospel? About this word, heaven and earth will pass away, just like flowers will fade, but my words, the word, will never pass away. What does that mean? What gives life is God's spirit. Human powers of no use at all. Now, what brings God's spirits? The words I have spoken to you bring God's life-giving spirit. And what I ultimately believe about this is that the words that Jesus came to bring are not just words, but actions, the life, uh, the character of God, the principle upon which his whole kingdom is based. He came to bring us that. That is actually the function of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We'll talk about this later, but the Holy Spirit ultimately brings us Jesus Christ, the truth about God as revealed by Jesus Christ. And Jesus would say, I'm telling you the truth. Those who hear my words and believe in him who sent me have eternal life. Eternal life is to know God. How do we know God? It is through the life, the death, words, actions of Jesus Christ. And notice, for these people, they will not be judged, but have already passed from death to life. You believe the good news. You believe that God is just as Jesus revealed him to be. That is to fully accept the good news. That is the gospel, the saving power of the gospel. And um, on the other side, those who don't accept God's revelation through Jesus Christ. Notice, what is it that actually happens to those people at the judgment? Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. Who's the judge? The words I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. That is, the revelation of who God is. This is ultimately all important. Have we responded to a God who's just like Jesus? A kind, gentle, humble, servant God I mean, we all admit God is powerful. No one is arguing among Christianity that God, whether God has the power or not. Jesus didn't come to say, I've come to prove to you God is powerful. He came to reveal that the one with all the power is the one who's so humble, gentle, forgiving. Um, that's the good news in a nutshell. Let's try to make a bigger case for this. Coming back to Isaiah 52. How wonderful it is to see a messenger coming across the mountains, bringing good news, the news of peace. He announces victory and says to Zion, your God is king. Those who guard the city are shouting, shouting together for joy. They can see with their own eyes the return of the Lord to Zion. Break into shouts of joy, you ruins of Jerusalem. The Lord will rescue his city and comfort his people. This incredible passage in Isaiah 52, which goes on into chapter 53. uh, Remember, there's no inspiration about the chapters. Those are put just arbitrarily in there. This whole passage going through Isaiah 53 is going to tell us what the good news is. You know, parenthetically, 
let me just bring out that this good news, the news of peace, is the real good news. Paul would quote this in Ephesians. Put on your shoes so that you are ready to spread the good news that gives peace. It's the same good news message. Remember, there was war in heaven. And that war in heaven, as we've described, was not fought with tanks and lightning bolts and so on. It was a war, a political war, a war of ideas, a war in the mind that ultimately involved uh, deception about who our God is. God was made out to be an arbitrary, vengeful tyrant by Satan. That's exactly the method he used with Eve at the tree. Remember the deception? Eve bought the lie that God was arbitrary, vengeful, severe. Okay, so the war is ultimately over our understanding of who God is. And if you believe that God is just like Jesus, I mean, is it possible to believe he's arbitrary, vengeful, and severe after you've watched him die on the cross? So the good news is the end to the war, and it brings peace, one person at a time. So going back to this passage in Isaiah 52, the Lord says, my servant will succeed in his task. He will be highly honored. Many people were shocked when they saw him. He was so disfigured that he hardly looked human. But now many nations will marvel at him and kings will be speechless with amazement. They will see and understand something they had never known. Jesus came and he brought us something that we would understand that we'd never known before. The people reply, who would have believed what we now report? Who could have seen the Lord's hand in this? And I love how, uh, well, first of all, tying this verse back to Romans but this is very significant. What did we see and understand that we didn't know and understand before the life and death of Jesus? But here's Paul quoting the same verse. And how can the message be proclaimed if the messengers are not sent out? As the scripture says, how wonderful is the coming of messengers who bring good news. But not all have accepted the good news. Isaiah himself said, Lord, who believed our message? Not all have understood and accepted the good news. And listen to how the Message Bible translates this. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? Who was expecting that God would look like Jesus? No one was expecting that God would be like that. I mean, it was shocking. Uh, my wife recently had a, a patient, a Jewish patient, and they had an interesting religious discussion. And, uh, you know, the subject of Jesus came up and... Uh, as, as I recall her telling of the conversation, the patient said, there's no way that God could be like Jesus. I mean, that is just unthinkable that he could be like that. No one thought that God's saving power would take the form of a God entering the womb, spending his first night in a manger, growing up in Nazareth. Unthinkable. But yet that is what our God is like. I'm going to read this passage again and we're just going to continue on because this is describing the good news. The Lord says, my servant will succeed in his task. He'll be highly honored. Many people were shocked when they saw him. He was so disfigured that he hardly looked human. But now many nations will mar marvel at him and kings will be speechless with amazement. They will see and understand something they had never known. The people reply, who could have believed what we now report? Who could have seen the Lord's hand in this? Reading on, the servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him. We thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself that God was punishing him for his failures. 
You can read this in any versions. We thought that God was punishing him. Isn't that sometimes how we describe the cross? The father killed the son, punished the son. No, we thought that. What was it that punished the son? But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own things, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true. And this passage concludes, and so I will give him a place of honor, a place among the great and powerful. He willingly gave his life and shared the fate of evil men. He took the place of many sinners and prayed that they might be forgiven. And isn't that what Jesus did? Some of his last words, Father, forgive them. Now, this is incredible, the parallels here. Now, where's the good news in this? Um, and I would just say, if I could say this uh, very gently, that uh, there is a me-centered good news that um, I think is not ultimately what the good news really is. Is the good news about me, my salvation, I can be saved, I have eternal life, the price was paid. Um, I think ultimately, when we watch our God die on a cross, there should be outgoing thoughts that, man, I can't believe our God is that way, that the good news ultimately says something about the kind of person God is. It is a good news about God. It's great news, yes, that we can have eternal life. That's wonderful news. But the ultimate, the good news, is something about the character of our God. And to really make the case for this, we go to the New Testament. And Paul would say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For notice, it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the good news, something is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals the righteousness, the goodness, the kindness, the love of our God. The gospel is about God, not about you and I. That's the good news. And that is what has the power. That is what strikes love in return and trust for God. His love is outpoured on us, the good news, and we respond to that. Not so much with uh, selfish thoughts about our own salvation. We just respond to the great love of God. That's, what, that's why Jesus came. Here's the clearest verse, though, of all, I think, on the good news. 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to these words very carefully. For if the gospel we preach is hidden, it is hidden only from those who are being lost. They do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news about the glory of Christ. The good news about the glory, the character of Christ. The good news is that God is just like Jesus. The good news is about the character of our God. Notice Christ, who is the exact likeness of God, not nose, mouth, eyes, ears, the same likeness and character. For it is not ourselves that we preach, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The God who said, out of darkness the light shall shine is the same God who made his light in, to shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory, the knowledge of God's character 
And where do we see that? Shining in the face of Christ. He came to change our mind about who God is. That is the good news. Very clear, it seems to me, in this passage. So when Jesus would say, just before he died, the night before he died, in John 17, he said, I have shown your glory on earth, talking to the Father. That's not a brightness. It's his character. I finished the work you gave me to do, the work, the mission. And he, we read on here, I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. Most of your versions say, I revealed your name. Name is character. I revealed who you are. That was his mission, his work, and that is the good news. And so it's described so many times this way. Here's how Paul would describe the good news. But I don't place any value on my own life. I want to finish the race I'm running. I want to carry out the mission I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. What's his mission? The mission of testifying to the good news of God's kindness. Did we really believe that God was kind until Jesus came? I mean, every false religion up to the cross and after has to do with appeasement of an angry God. A few verses later, I am now entrusting you to God and to his message that tells how kind he is or that tells how gracious he is. That is the good news. Notice that's the message that can help you grow and can give you the inheritance that is shared by all of God's holy people. Hey, the good news is what has the power unto salvation. And so, so many books in the New Testament just open up this way. Romans 1 opens up. The good news was promised long ago by God through the prophets as written in the Holy Scriptures. Notice the good news is about a person. It is about his son. Who is the son? He is God in human form. Mark 1 opens up. This is the good news. It's about a person, about Jesus Christ the Son of God. Okay, That person is God. He reflects the brightness of God's glory, his character. He's the exact likeness of God's own me. And that's how Hebrews 1 opens up. And in 1 John, we know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding. He's going to answer the question, why did Jesus come? What understanding did he come to bring us so that we know the true God? That is, so that we know the good news about what God is like. We live in union with the true God, in union with his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. This is eternal life. Not the number of years. Our eternal life is about our God and about our relationship with such a good God. So looking forward, I mean, we, we always say the good news needs to go throughout the world. So we come to the three angels' message. Then I saw another angel flying high in the air with an eternal message of good news. Notice God has always been the same in character. Um, he's not different before the cross or after the cross. It's an eternal message. He's always been the same. We just haven't understood it. An eternal message of good news to announce to the peoples of the earth, to every race, tribe, language, and nation. So this is the message that must go throughout the world. And if you don't mind me quoting something that was written well over 100 years ago, but uh, to me it wouldn't matter who wrote this because it is just... Um, I don't know. It's everything that is important as I understand the Bible. This is the message that must go throughout the world. Here it is. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. What is that darkness? Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Okay, what message is that? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the
the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. Okay, that's it in a nutshell. That's the good news, and uh, that's what eventually will, prophetically, it will happen at some time, that it really will go throughout the entire world. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have so clearly through your Son revealed to us that you are love personified. And may this message about your goodness, your love, your kindness, your forgiving character, may this go throughout the world. We love you. Amen.